Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, spine number 33, 1981's The Boogans and other cave-dwelling regional monster movies with Turtles, Doggies, Doggy Electric Chairs, Pool, Park City, Hormone Man, and Rebecca Balding. Jacob. Yes. You dare question the virility of Hormone Man? Why, it's Hormone Man, able to leap tall women in a nightly bound. of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight. Joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing? I'm very good. Is this the ultimate one for me episode from Martin? Probably. I think if we did final exam, it'd be close. Uh, just a strict final exam episode, that would be another. That's fair. Yeah. Because I'm not going to lie, the movie that we're covering this week, The Boogans, or is it The Boogans? I've always said Boogans. Okay. Yeah. But I've I, already said Boogans. Like, that. that's what we already said on the East Coast. But I just wonder if it was just us being idiots again. Yeah, I think. And in the movie, they only say it once. It's the old man who's like, Boogans. Uh, he, he I must have totally zoned out for that yeah, part. say it one time. I wanted to know how they even came up with the title because I was like, is the... Is the Boogans even said in this? I don't think so. So I must have like zoned out or something when that happened. But back on track, this was a big movie for you growing up, I want to say, or... I came to it super late. Um, okay. But it's funny. I mean, if y'all listen back to the early episodes, it comes up a few times. If I, I, I mention it yes. in relation to other films. I think when we were planning out season two... I was pushing for it, but I also get like, it's I resisted. You resisted. It's an acquired taste. Um, but it's also a film that I think I saw it. The first I saw it was like 2012 or 13. Oh, okay. Um, Cause it, the olive films, Blu-ray came out and for the right. longest time. So it didn't even come out on VHS to like the late nineties. Like it took forever. There are all these rights issues. Um, and it was never released on VHS, even for like 16 years after it came out in theaters. Um, but it would play either on cable and things like that. Um, I saw it at a rep screening. I saw it on 35 millimeter because Exhumed played it on a print that literally looked like a dog had pissed on it. Well, then there aren't, I mean, it, it didn't get a huge release. There's probably not a lot of prints out there anyway. But yeah, I saw it when I was at um, the video drum uh, video store in Atlanta with my friends, John and Elise. We would always pick up whatever they had in the new release. They would put all their new release, kind of like Vulcan did, of like new editions of, of Blu-rays. Right. Just in. Yeah, just in. Great cover. We watched it. And I, I really liked it. And I asked for it. <laughs> my parents like, what do you want for Christmas? I'd get me the Boogans. And I just watched it over and over again. Um, and I think a point you made when we were messaging about it, where the charm lies, it's like, as a monster movie, not that great. Um, the monster is pretty subpar. However, um, as a hangout slasher movie before the monster stuff starts. I think it's, it's really great. It's that same era. It's 1981. Um, and that's why I like watching it. Actually, once the monster shows up, I kind of tune out. I've watched it probably honestly like 20 times. Um, but I just like hanging out with those characters in, you know, pre Sundance park city. Um, just, it's a, it's a very just charming movie for me. And I, every friend I've shown it to like, they, like, we got anything weird we haven't seen before. Like they always enjoy watching and say, "Why wow, these characters are very likable." Specifically, Rebecca Balding and Fred McCarran's relationship. See, the Boogans became a inside joke with me and a couple friends who used to go to the Exhum screenings because we hated it so much the first time <laughs> that we watched it. For the reason that you're basically saying is that I I can't remember. It had to have been like early two thousands when they played it, mm -hmm. and we sat through it. It was the double feature, like the second movie on a, one of their double or, or triple bills. And 
we used to say to each other, like when they would play stuff in the future after that screening that we didn't like, we would still go, well, it's still better than the Boogans. <laughs> so it has that going for it. Because it, I'm not going to lie, on this rewatch, maybe it's age, maybe it's just finding the vibe or the groove with this movie again, or maybe it's just our conversations in general in terms of how it really harkens back to the early Paramount slashers uh, post Friday the 13th. Like it, it's straight up almost the, the exact template of those just with a monster instead of like a dude in a hockey mask in the woods picking off teenagers is that I just found to where it was like, oh, these characters are actually pretty cool. I like these guys. And again, we, we've said time and time again that like, half the battle to really liking a slasher movie is just enjoying spending time with the characters because it just becomes almost like a hangout film until the deaths and the bodies start pot piling up. Yeah. That's something I think we got to when we were talking about uh, killer party, I guess two seasons ago, right. Was to your point, like the better the characters, the better the slasher. Um, but also like, Slasher films and these kind of like lower budget horror films, which slashers were as well. These like, you know, sub million dollar movies most of the time, usually limited locations um, where they were great little slices of life kind of on accident. Like you have like a movie like American Graffiti or Days to Confuse as these flashback movies. This is like just a real time. This is what it was like to be. I mean, obviously not realistic, but these people are supposed to be in the late 20s. They're just right out of college. Um there's a lot. It's just I find them all like I think Roger's funny. I think that the Rebecca Balding again, Fred McCarran, um relationship is like super cute. Like their whole thing of them flirting at the bar and like he's just totally like bombing and she's kind of helping him along. He's not bombing, but she's kind of flirting back and helping him flirt back with her. There's a thing happening there. But yeah, she's definitely lifting up his lame attempts the entire time because she's into it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something um so I watched the uh, the good bad flicks making of of this, which is this great YouTube channel that does just like honestly synopses of bad horror films or good bad horror films, but also we'll do exploring episodes. And um, I, I forget the guy who runs it, but he did a great kind of like video essay on the history of this film. And it's interesting. So Charles B. Sellier, who produced it, Junior, who ended up directing um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, um, was a producer of. Um, straight to TV, um, nature documentaries and like in search of documentaries, like in search of Bigfoot. Um, they owned chariots of the gods, like that book and the, and the, they did the movie for TV. Um, and when it was, I think the, it was sun, I think sun studios was the name of the company when he owned it. Um, sun classics, sorry, S U N N. And he sold the entire catalog to this Taft international, Oh, okay. And when they sold to Taft International, Boogans was already like in like mid pre-production, I think. And I think too money was too much money was already in. And they said, well, fuck it, let's do it. But Taft wanted it to be more exploitative. So Sun was doing these really family-friendly stuff. They did the Grizzly Adams movies too. So they were like right. really family-friendly, like take your kids or watch it at home. Nothing offensive at all. They were almost religious. It, it has that sense or of Christian, I should say. Yeah, without it being said. Well, they did actually did like in search of Jesus. They yeah. did some like they did a couple straight up like Christian themed uh, family films. Let's say yeah, almost like Hallmarky. I right. would say where it's like very safe. And then Taft um, said, oh, "If we're going to do it, we're going to make it our." And we're going to do nudity and we're going to do more violence because the original idea was going to be much more centered on the history of the miners, more like a mystery. Which um, is what the credits really sets up because like it has all those newspaper clippings and stuff and it, it chronicling like all the disasters and the cave-ins and like these mysterious possible attacks and stuff that are happening in the mines. And it, it preps you for like, oh, this is what this is going to be about. It's almost like, do you ever see the, the proto-slasher movie, The Severed Arm? I wish it was you. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> so, like, it, it reminded me a lot of that. I didn't realize that we watched that together. You showed it to me like it was a Friday at, like, 2 a.m. Like, let's is, put this on. Oh, it was Friday at 2 a.m.? Yeah. That explains why I don't remember it. <laughs> but it, um, James B. Conway, who directed it, um, had done a, a, a number of films with 
um, with Sun and with Charles Bucellier and a couple of their first feature films like Hangar 18. Right. Um, which I think were still more family friendly. And so he was kind of not gung ho to make it a gory thing anyway, but he's like, Hey, let's get this movie made. Um, there's a lot of back and forth with the, the, uh, the cast because originally they were all going to be naked. Like it was going to be not the whole time, but they were all going to do nude scenes and they're like right into production. And then it was Fred McCarran and then, uh, Amory Martin and the other guy who plays Roger also, we don't want to do it. But Rebecca Balding said, Hey, I had already signed my contract. And also like she was falling in love with the director and they're still fucking married today. They got married during production. She proposed to him like the second week. She was like, if my man asked me to whip out the girls, they're getting whipped out. And the sex scene is, like, pretty, like, he goes down on her for a while. Like, it's, I mean. It's, it's almost comedic. Yeah. In a way, in the how kind there. of goofy it is. And, yeah, the dog comes in. Because we, we do need to talk about, there's some great dog acting in this. And, like, if Tiger. we ever got to interview Conway, I'd love to know, like, how did you direct Tiger the dog? Because, like, the dog, this little weird ugly ass poodle is given its own like character arc almost like it's the one that has probably the most screen time with the monster. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole, there's a whole scene that plays out like a slasher death with the, with the dog. dog. (laughs) It's awesome. And it's like, kind of like, what was that? They had two dogs. They had two stunt dogs. Um, they were identical, um, that could do different things, but like, it's amazing. Like, like the, the training on it is pretty impressive like what it does in the screen and actually acting scared is that great shot of the tentacle tip coming through the grate and it kind of like backs away oh it's uh, awesome it's really really cool um well the do- the way the dog reacts to it too yes. is really fucking yes. cool it's just a shame that dog number one was murdered by the turtle in the end <laughs> yes exactly in real life not not on screen like it the turtle puppet actually ate the dog <laughs> I don't know how they cleared this movie with the SPCA, but you know, they got one past them. It, it makes it, it makes it better. Um, but it's, um, it's what happens when you get the Frederick Weissman of slasher movies making this monster <laughs> film. But that, that's kind of what makes it interesting though, is it does have a schizophrenic nature where you have the, it feels in very good humor. Most of the time, like it feels like it has its heart in the right place. And like, again, it has these like lovable characters, but then it has these like scenes that are supposed to be a little bit more disreputable. And they try to and, and the and the the hormone man stuff I make fun of is it doesn't play very well and it feels very forced into the movie because everything else feels kind of wholesome. Yeah, you know, it's odd because you can feel the two. I'm I'm glad that you brought up the production history because you can distinctly feel the two tones clashing with yes. one another because there's something almost chased even with like the love story despite the graphic sex scene and everything <laughs> like like we were talking about all the early flirtations and stuff it feels like something that would be in like almost like a family friendly like made for tv movie that you would turn on on abc on like a seven o'clock you know friday night airtime but like then when you get like the ending of this movie gets like ridiculously gross and graphic in terms of like the blood and gore and like when they blow the fucking animal away and like heads are exploding and you're kind of like, Oh wow, this really took a turn. The, the coolest thing about this movie too is, um, they could not decide on the design for the, the bookends. And so you can tell you it's, it's cause it's many things like the original, they said was supposed to be, um, a crab like face with crab claws and then a giant scorpion tail. And that didn't make it on screen. Nope, it did not. And th- so Charles B. Cellier, who was a complete huckster, like he really was all about making money. Which oh, was, yeah. And so he. You don't make a Santa Claus slasher movie if not if you're not into it, in it for the money, let's yes, say. And I, God bless that movie. And he. They. Well, a lot of his films, what they would do is they would release the novella at the same time, like the novelization, which wasn't, right. wasn't, which was pretty common back then, but usually for bigger movies. And he had a different, he had a novelist kind of fill it out. I guess it's like very different. There's like a mayor character, like an owner of like the mine, more of like a, the, there's, there's also like in the book, there's spider creatures. Like there, there are many more and they crawl over like the walls. Well, there's, there's something fascinating about both this and one of the other films that we chose to pair with this for this episode is that they almost play like 
the homemade regional versions of Jaws. Yes. Where there's always like a character being like, we have to keep the town open. We have to keep the actual information away from the people. They'll riot if they find out there's an evil turtle monster killing people in the mines. Like Winter Beast, which is the, the uh, one of the other movies that we have, like the entire effeminate oh mayor my- character in that, like feels straight up like... The nemesis in Jaws. Yeah, Murray. Yeah. Murray Hamilton. Exactly. Who yeah. like only if Murray Hamilton was played by like John Waters because he's what a bizarre performance that guy gives. I think it was Thursday night. I was watching this movie and I was kind of lying down. I was into it. And then and then that character shows up and I sit up. I go, wait, 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 what's going on here? And at, at his his arrival in this movie made me sit up because he's this very effeminate. Uh, you said John Watersy. He kind of, the sound is so bad, you don't always know what he's saying. Um, the dub on that movie ooh. is really odd. But I guess because like parts of it were shot in 16 millimeter, parts of it were shot in 8 millimeter, and it very much feels like, we were talking off mic before we started recording, is that Winter Beast feels almost like a special effects reel that these guys yes. were putting together to, to get bigger jobs that they just found a way to fashion an actual narrative around because like, which they didn't, there's multiple <laughs> like gnarly creatures that just come out of nowhere. There's skulls that like rip through guys, rib cages out of nowhere. It opens with a dream sequence. That's never touched upon again. Really? Again, that's very gnarly and gory. Like it's just, it's clearly an excuse for them being like, look, we're really good at like homemade stop motion animation bullshit. What if you like only kind of half care about what's happening around it and you just show up for the the horrible monsters? It reminds me of um you ever see Equinox? Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of that and then it gives me very heavy Sam Raimi within the woods vibes. Like what he did with that short film to then eventually make Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 an Army of Darkness. Yeah, I would agree. And I think there's a lot of um, the way the dialogue scenes are straight up Herschel Gordon Lewis. Like it's like these corners of rooms. Shot with one angle. Yep. And it's just like these like these two shots and they just jam it in the corner of like probably all the same room they were shooting thing. Okay, this is the lodge. This is the lodge entrance over here. This is the station over here. And they just kind of like probably had one big room that they were shooting this in. There's that long dialogue sequence in the beginning, which there's that one character I don't think takes his sunglasses off the entire movie. And like a lot of it happens at night. Yeah. But it's like him working at the store, talking to this cop and like the cop, you can tell the guy who's playing the cop clearly doesn't know what to do. It's almost like that, uh, that that is it the Talladega Nights oh, joke his hands. where he's like yeah. I, I just don't know what to do with my hands like what and he just keeps moving them around and trying to keep them out of the frame like that guy's whole performance seems to be based around like I just I don't know what to do I can't sit still like at one point he literally gets up puts his leg up and starts like almost like pelvic thrusting while he's delivering dialogue and you can tell that I don't think he actually knows what he's doing while he's doing it it's just that it's like a nervous tick of like people who aren't used to being on camera are like Ugh, I don't know do I is this how acting works like and then he's doing the the lick my love pump, like just thrust with his dick and his gun and stuff. And you're like, dude, just sit down. It's cool, man. We just need you to deliver the lines. We'll get to the next monster scene. <laughs> well, it's like, it's funny you said about like, you know, different film stock. It feels like short ends too. Cause like, oh yeah. 100%. And, it, and it's like all in the same scene. Like the wides will be like really good, like crisp, like 16 millimeter and the close-ups will be like eight millimeter. They stuff they shot later or had two cameras. And it's like, it looks like complete ass. Um, <laughs> like just really just like, dog shit. But like this movie has, is really enjoyable. Like it has that like DIY feel to it. There's a lot of charm. Like it's, it's funny. I wrote Jaws. Like that's one of my notes here. It just says Jaws because <laughs> like that's all it is, is there's so much is pulling on, but it's so, um, incompetent in a lot of ways of like 
like I don't know where anything is. They keep like, well, I gotta need a guide to go up there. Like, where's up there? Every, this is it's clearly California or something. Like, there's no snow like anywhere. Right. And there's this blizzard. They go to like the um the wild goose lodge is just like I think it's just a a, a scenic flat that they have like one corner of. Um, it's really hard. I mean, I, I know what's going on, but it, there's just like they keep going up and down the mountain and keep talking about oh, it's really hard to get up there. Then they're there. There's like. Oh, there's like again eight different monsters. You don't know how they're connected. It's supposed to be one monster. Some really offensive Native American um, stuff as well. Like there's a scene where so one of the characters owns like it's obviously a real shop that where they where they filmed um, like Native American curios, but it's like a white white people own it. And there's just the scene of them sitting there, and it's just the most offensive memorabilia on in every. F- inch of the frame of like native American girl dolls and these masks on the back wall. And it just looks like, like a modern art piece about racism. Like it would be like in MoMA and it's just like, no, it's, just it's, real. it's real bad, man. Yeah. It's like uh, when I went to my ex wife's uh, grandma's house one time and she lived in a, a single room log cabin in the middle of nowheresville, Kentucky and you went there, and she's this sweet little old woman that they called Mima. I like that. And and she couldn't have weighed more than seventy pounds, soaking wet. Shuffled around her her one room cabin, made us like cornbread and grits and stuff in a cast iron skillet. Owned like three dishes. But you would walk around the house and you would find like all of the weird old like blackface Cupid dolls and things like that to where you'd yeah. be like, Mima clearly comes from another time and it almost felt like a stage, but you're like, no, this is a real person's house. Like these people still fucking exist and they're out there and like you, you'll find some real racist artifacts here, man. Yeah, it's all over this movie, but... Um, well, I guess Winter Beast was shot... Throughout like half of the 80s, it, almost like Eraserhead style mm-hmm. to where they shot it on weekends. Phantasm. Using, yeah, 16 millimeter, 8 millimeter, and like really pieced it together as like a labor of love because I don't think it was completed until like 91 or 92 or something. But like it's another one kind of like how we were talking with Alien from LA last week is that it's become like a riff track staple. It's a movie that people, you know, have done like midnight screenings of and like make fun of and blah, blah, blah. But like, there's something really charming about the film because the one thing I thought about with all four movies that we watched is that we don't get movies like this anymore. And by that, I mean, not the whole, like they don't make them like they used to bullshit. Although I guess there's an element of that to what I'm about to say. But that, like, in the age of, like, digital photography Mm. and CGI, even, like, that you're able to do with, like, very cheap, like, After Effects type stuff, like, the age of, like, making the handcrafted weirdo piece of outsider art like nobody's ever making the eraser head baby no again you know nobody unless it's like on purpose and trying to be ironic or, or something. exactly yeah like you, you, we just don't get that and there's a real handcrafted feel to the boogans to winter beast to the strangeness and even to uh, the Kevin Tenney movie that we're going to cover too, the seller to the beastie that's in that like they all just feel like they're actually made by people and not machines and and computers and stuff. And like that's charming from a nostalgia standpoint. And also just from the fact that like, Oh, it's kind of a lost art to do like just base your whole movie around like, Hey, we're really good at stop motion animation, man. There's um, something we've talked about this year, but this is, this has been a great year. Like for 2022, some good stuff coming out already. It's like, there's some really, Good stuff coming too, because I see Top Gun tomorrow. I see it Tuesday, and um, that new Mission Impossible trailer. Woo! Oh, I haven't seen it yet. I refuse to watch it because, like, I already know it's going to be great. So why do I need to see any footage from it? It's it's pretty heavenly. I I watched it eight times, but that's no that's neither here nor there. But you know, <laughs> you know, again, this is a, a year of, but also like I was so incredibly underwhelmed. In fact, just hated um, Doctor Strange um, and. You know, you have Sam Raimi who began in this 
era, this this like arena. He's we're talking literally about. the basis for pretty much all the movies that we're talking about right now. Yeah. Like he, it's a little too early for him to be the basis for the Boogans, but like he's the inspiration for shit like Winter Beast and the Strangest stuff. Is that it's like there's this, these guys, these rogue weirdos from fucking Michigan who like went out into the woods and made this crazy sensation in the Evil Dead, and like we can do that too, right? Yep, and it's. It, it, he's, I, I like seeing for all of these films faults, just like a sense of like can do attitude. Right. Um, and I mean, like I really, really enjoyed the strangeness. Like you, um, you messaged me about it. I was watching it, I guess last night, but it's really nothing happens in this movie. I mean, like at all, like really, and there's no plot to it. It's, it's just, and and it's like you watch a film like The Descent, which I love, the Neil Marshall film. And it's very clear what their problem is, what the monster is, like the sense of like, there's no way out. We have to keep going forward. This one's all over the fucking place of like, oh, there's another way out, but we shouldn't go that way. It's like, well, just go if you need to escape. There's like, first, like there's like the ropes cut. They're fine with it. Then there's like a cave in. It's kind of hard to follow at points too. It's there's also the, dark as hell. There's the weird like sort of English, sort of Australian guy that just happens to be in this oh, like, him. backwoods Monroe. mining town that you're like, but it is, it is the interesting and, and perfect kind of flip side to the Boogans because where Boogans is literally Silver City, right? Is the, the name of the town that they're in and a bunch of people are trapped in the mine and they find out later that they were eaten and killed uh, by these monsters that are down there. Um, like the strangers kind of does the same exact thing. Only it's a gold mine instead of like a silver tract. And they're like, Oh man, there might still be like some riches to find in this mine. Let's go down there. That's about the most plot that you get. Like, I don't even think the Boogans at least attempts to offer an explanation as to where those things came from. Mm-hmm. The strangeness is just like, it's there. There's the thing, I guess. Oh, well, they so one thing that does run through three of these films out of the four is no Native American talk in The Boogans, but there is Heavy and Winter Beast, The Cellar, and also in The Strangeness, where early on Monroe is talking to, I think, David, the, the author guy who's narrate, right. who's kind of narrates, and it's, he's pretty funny. I like his character. And he said... Oh, and uh, the writer in this is like his weird high-pitched voice. There's a lot of odd, inexplicable idiosyncrasy to this movie that you're just kind of like, was he... Were these the only actors that you had access to? Or like, were these actual choices? Probably the, the former. Maybe but a mix I, of both. But I like that because there's the scene where Moreau basically tells him... He tells him the history of this area, and it was like Native American, and they. He said, "I think it was that it's like a whole cursed land th- thing." Well, they, they they brought something forth, like from the depths, to fight, to fight like um like the white invaders. And then he laughs and he says, "It's almost like the Wendigo myth." Same kind of thing. He's like, "That's a bunch of bullshit, though." He goes, "It's probably the Native Americans. They killed them and then gave it." a... Then they made up a curse to keep people away, Scooby Doo style, you know. And it turns out that there is something down there. Um, but then seller has the native American goes heavier out of all three with the native American myth side of things might actually be the most sympathetic out of all of them too, towards the actual native American characters, because mm-hmm. we're in yeah. the other films, particularly winter beast is that it's almost like the pet cemetery thing to where it's like, there are these faceless native Americans who are just mad at the white man. And like, that's where you you kind of hang a lot of the mythos of the movie around. We're like in the cellar, we actually meet the Native American characters and they have like, you know, motivation. They have interior lives. Like they're even like probably wiser than the white characters because oh, yeah, there's yeah. even that that great moment in the cellar where they first move on to that, that ranch house and he sees... Uh, the Indian character more or less like blessing the tractor. And he even makes the joke. He's like, what's that Indian guy doing to the tractor? And he's like, no, he's just making sure that no evil spirits come here. And it's like, yeah, dummy. Like you just moved on to this, like obviously cursed land. Like the seller out of all of these is the one that like I enjoy because it outside of the Boogans is probably the most competently made, but at the same time, narratively it's so dumb because if I moved there, I would be like, nope, 
like I know that this is cursed land. Like you don't even have to tell me that shit. Like look at this place. Tell me can't stay though. You know it's yeah. <laughs> a great Eddie Murphy joke. You know and this one this one didn't work as well for me as the last I watched. I watched it today, and it sucks. I really like Kevin S. Tenney. I love Night of the Demons. I really like Witchboard. Yeah, lot. we both do. And this was the same year as Night of the Demons, but I saw that there was another filmmaker that who either finished it or started the film. The uh, producers basically took it away from him. Well, it makes sense. And recut it because the Vinegar Syndrome disc has his director's cut on it to where he actually does an introduction and explains the kind oh. of tough history that the movie went through. I didn't see that version, so... Um, I mean, it, it makes sense. This feels this feels a little chopped up. Um, there's a really jarring cut where you first meet his son, who's like in New York, and who's coming to visit. And he's like, he plugs in. That uh, kid sucks. He's, by oh, the way. he's the worst. He reminds me a lot of Will Wheaton in The Curse. Just like that that obnoxious like farm boy kind of thing going on. But he he plugs into it a cigarette lighter of this to help solder um, the servos of his um, remote control plane. And you get, they're like, the kid's like, oh, where are you going again? He's like, oh, see my dad. Hard cut, we're in the desert. It's like the weirdest edit. And he's just standing there outside. And it's like, okay. You know, they pieced this together best they could, it feels like. Which is sad because the actual director's cut feels sort of like a Clive Barker story. Interesting. Because it's like, here's these white people who moved to this obviously cursed land. They're tr- warned away from it. And then they're hunted by a demon more or less that was that uh risen because of horrible white consumerism people like drilling too deep and trying to get oil and stuff in the middle of texas and instead they they summon a a horrible like meat eating monster kind of rat looking thing and the monster's really cool looking it's the best of the four i mean easily the best looking of the four i think yeah maybe I, re- I actually really like the Boogans monster. I know it's goofy, but like when you actually see its face, it reminds me a lot of when you see the Graboids for the first time in Tremors because it kind of roars at you. It has a weird like fleshy mouth and everything. And like, I don't know. I had a lot of fun with it this time around. No, I, I hear you. I just think like the most, the one that looks like it actually could fuck you up is the one from uh, The Cellar. Oh, yeah. Um, like that end sequence where it's in the tunnel and it's like coming after them reminded me a lot of when Kirstie uh, opens the wall in Hellraiser. The engineer. And is, yeah, attacked by the engineer and everything. It almost feels beat for beat the That's same exact shit. thing. Yeah, I love like that scene when I was a kid, like totally fucked me up, man. Yeah, if you want to talk like. Barker. It's funny that, you know, one of our mutual favorite short stories is Pig Blood Blues. Right. And this kind of has that feeling of like the under that giant pig size or, you know, pig kind of rat. It also reminded me a lot of the underground stuff from Graveyard Shift. Oh, yeah. Which I actually like that movie a lot. Um, it's it's a rough one, but it's, you know. Um, and Graveyard Shift would actually fit into this. Yes series of movies that we're doing, too, because like I always felt like I was listening to. Um, I believe it was the big picture podcast where they had Matt Gorley and I can't remember the other guy that he does a podcast mm-hmm. with, but they do almost like horror movie stuff together yeah. or whatever. And they were doing a Stephen King hall of fame. They were putting together and they kind of just breeze past graveyard shift by being like, uh, oh, not really anything memorable or watchable or blah, blah, blah. And like, I, I agree that it's definitely like lower tier, King adaptation, but there's like so much atmosphere and grime and yes. goop to that. And like, I really like the end gross weirdo bat monster. Like I thought, I think that one's kind of undervalued. I a hundred percent agree. I think, I mean, obviously I'd love to do a King episode at some point, but there's, um, it's it's a short story from King that's that's really cool. It's just, you know very much like working class people like cleaning out this basement because that's a um, night shift one. Right? It's a night shift, yeah. So like seventies. Um, I've always liked the story. It's a really creepy part. There's all these like legless um, blind rats. Oh, that's that right. Like yeah. rolling around like larva, and they're like they're all pale because they've been too deep in the earth, and it's really fucking creepy and cool. Um, that's that cocaine paranoia peeking oh, through in King's writing. It's the good shit. Well, and it's you know. I put Graveyard Shift together with Cujo, which I think they're just, they're both good monster movies. They're not great King movies that capture the spirit of King, but they're just good, good, solid monster movies. Um, and yeah, I think any, I like any kind of underground 
monster stuff. I like the cave with uh, Cole Hauser. It's real schlocky. Um, Ooh, that is a pretty good one. That's a fun one. It was like PG thirteen, like, but it was just a really good like time at the movies. Like they, you could tell they had like two sets, and the rest is like really shitty green screen work. But I've always liked that one. Yeah, that's the thing about all four of these films that we found is that they're like the very definition of like shelf stuffer stuff that we would have like sought out at the video store, not yes. even really sought out, but just kind of stumbled across because we've been like, Oh, this is cool cover art. Oh, winter beast. That's a neat title. And then you go home and you watch it. And like, you remember the parts of it that are like, like the obvious, like money shot stuff, you know, the monsters in winter beast, that weird demon thing at the end of winter beast that they obviously the forced perspective photography at the end when it's like, just clearly some dude in like a devil mask and like a guy laying on his back in like a field, like pulling the focus back. So that it looks like the guy's a, like a Kaiju style it works giant. Well. <laughs> it works pretty well, but you sit there and you go like, even as a kid at the video store, you would watch that and probably giggle the whole time. Like, Oh, come on. Like I, you know, this is not scary guys, but like this, the seller would have been a huge like sleepover hit with me as a kid. If I had seen it that early, it actually took until this vinegar syndrome release for me to even see the movie for the first time. But like, if I watched that with a bunch of my buddies when I was like 11 or 12 years old, it probably would have been one of our favorites because it's like each one of these films has a very unique setting and feel like, you know, uh, the Boogans and Winter Beast and, well, actually the Boogans and the Strangeness more than anything feel like uh, My Bloody Valentine. Like they they exist in that same exact, yes. very cold, very blue collar working class universe where like the cellar feels like it exists in like I have this dusty, dirt smeared ver- vision of Texas where there's like nothing but windstorms and like it's almost outback. Yeah, it's, it's almost like exploitation feel. Exactly, it's really, yeah. really fucking cool. Kind of like almost has like echoes of Razorback, like Mulcahy's Razorback, which I like a just lot. without all the surreal touches that Mulcahy would right. would bring to it. Like the thing about Tenny that I think is really interesting as a director is that he's very workmanlike and he gives you exactly what you know that the producers want you like him to give the audience. It's like in night of the demons, they're like, we have Linnea Quigley. We're going to have her act crazy, get naked and then kill some folks very graphically. And it's like Kevin Teddy goes, mm-hmm, I understand the assignment. So I'm also going to have her shove some lipstick into her boob and we're going to oh, keep man. moving. That's one of the great like scream queen performances of all time. Like I love Linnea Quigley so much utter maniac as a human being, but on screen, mm. I told you when I met her, right? You did what she said to me. Yes. Yeah. yeah she, she nasty, but, uh, it's always the quiet ones. I'm going to go now. Can you sign this exercise video for me? Linnea? Thank you. Thank you. No, but you know what I mean? Like, and even something like Graveyard Shift fits into this category as well. I'm glad you brought that one up because like that mill set oh, that they yeah. use and that is fucking awesome. Yes. I love, um, there was something I was watching, I mean, I was actually watching Blade Runner this weekend and like, I love films that fill the frame with just like production, right. production is not, and like not to compare Graveyard Shift to Blade Runner, but, but go for it, do it though. But, but it has the similar that like Del Toro also fills his frames. Like it's sure. like, this is a, Del Toro's Graveyard Shift. Yeah, I mean, I would watch that. Holy shit. Like a gothic. (laughs) There's a gothic feel to the design. Um, And I I love, actually, uh, one of my favorite parts of Graveyard Shift is anything he's in is Brad Dourif. I think he's a cool, like. Because he's the rat catcher. He's the rat catcher. Oh, yeah, he's great. So I I interviewed him and I just, I was like, dude, I got to tell you, I think Graveyard Shift's like fucking awesome. Um, He's super. What did he say? He was like, oh, thanks. He was just like. We were, oh, we, were, we were mostly talking about Chucky because he was here for the, it was, it was a Chucky interview for, okay. with uh, his daughter, Fiona, who's also like the coolest person. Um, but uh, that's one of my favorite roles of his. I think it's a super fun, like the design. He's just got, the, he's like chewing, that chewing tobacco. He's got the, the nasty ponytail. And then, but he's like, there's that part where he's just like, he has the tube hooked up and he's like pouring the rats out into like the river behind like 
the textile factory. Yeah, it's what well, it's. I think it's the same idea, same time that um, King got the idea for the Mangler, because like he had worked, I think, in a textile factory. The other time he worked in a laundromat, and that's when he got the idea for the Mangler. Right. Of like, oh, what if you got trapped in there and made a whole movie, or made a whole story. The Mangler. There's another one with a d- very distinct atmosphere. <laughs> what, and what a weird setting. movie! <laughs> now, yeah, that's the thing. Is that I think that movie's kind of wrongfully maligned. Frankly, like I'm not going to sit here and tell you like the Mangler is some kind of hidden masterpiece or no. something. But man, it's got a real go for broke performance from Robert England. Oh, he's going for it. The gore is awesome. When that machine actually comes to life and starts eating people towards the end, it's really fucking cool. And like Toby Hooper, again may have never been able to shake Texas chainsaw for the entirety of his career, but like he does a really good job and that one setting up again, like this miserable inescapable kind of working class milieu that frankly feels spiritually linked to graveyard shift because graveyard mm-hmm. shift for me, you know, one of the funniest things about like pet cemetery obviously is that we we've, we've spent decades now making fun of Fred Gwynn's, Main accent. Oh, that was better. Don't go down there. <laughs> a man's heart, Estonia. A man's heart, Estonia. All gauge. <laughs> Don't cut my Achilles tendon, please. No. Like, it goes so far out of its way to be like, this is Maine. And you're like, no, it's not. Graveyard shift actually feels like Maine. Like, I believe that that textile weirdo, like, gross factory exists in some pocket of like rural New England that like you never want to go to because if something happens, a guy like Brad Dourif does actually show up and you go, I quit for good. Like the planet, not this job. Is Steven mocked supposed to be Romanian or is that supposed to be a horrible Maine accent? Oh, that's no, he's doing Maine too. It's really Cause bad. it's in, it, he's going for the Fred Gwynn award there but because past. it's no, 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 nobody okay. has ever, <laughs> Ever exceeded Fred Gwynn's level of insanity in Pet Cemetery. Like, that's one of those performances, again, to bring up Alien from L.A., like we talked about last week, is that, like, at no point did anybody go, maybe we shouldn't do this. <laughs> like, with Kathy Ireland's voice. Like, somebody, Brandon wrote that amazing article for us that went up, and it's gotten a lot of traction with folks, and we, I really want to thank everybody who has taken the time to read and share it and everything. Yeah, Brandon's awesome. Like, Brandon's great. Um, but some douche, like, replied to our Twitter feed was actually like, actually, that was Kathy Ireland's real speaking voice. That wasn't a choice in the movie. They just went with it. And you're just like, pump the brakes, dude. You're like, all right, look. Even if it was her real speaking voice. And I know that it was because I've seen interviews with fucking Kathy Ireland for like, you know, the last 20, 30 years of my life. Like, she's Kathy Ireland. And also, I remember necessary I was going to say, how can you not? But like, you know, even if that was her real speaking voice and she was taking acting lessons as this guy tra- like claims to try and change it and stuff, you can change that. Like, it's not just her. And, like, at, I replied from the account. I was like, you don't think that the movie leaned into it, like, a little bit? Like, at some point, Pune was like, yeah, yeah, this is good. This is perfect for her, like, childlike wonder. Like, we know that's your real voice, but we're going to, like, emphasize it and yeah. shit. Because even if you didn't like it, you could dub over it later. Yeah. Like, there's Which a million not ways to doing. fucking... Yeah, and yeah. Pune would dub the shit out of people. But like here, at no point did anybody watch the dailies for Brett's like pet cemetery and go, Fred, <clears throat> can you come here? Come here for a sec. Um, the voice that you're doing, what um what would you say is that dialect that you're speaking in? Is this supposed to be New England or okay, whatever it is, it's not happening anymore. <laughs> and like we're getting rid of the footage that we already shot with you. I'm sorry, but we'll do it again. It'll be fine. <laughs> But yeah, I do think that the Stephen Mox accent is like he's he's trying to do the same thing because there is if it's been a while since I've seen Graveyard Shift, and we might be spending more time on Graveyard Shift on this podcast. I'm than, fine with it. Than anything else, <laughs> but like, um, I if I remember correctly, there was not necessarily a subplot, but they do talk about how like some of their workers were Eastern European or stuff, or I could be making that shit up in my head. Yeah. Cause no, the I, mangler I, does something similar too. I thought, and I do seem to remember that mocked is supposed to be part 
Eastern European for some Something. reason. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that I, I hadn't thought about. We, we could, I mean, it definitely was not in fitting with our theme of more of these regional, and it was definitely a bigger budget of Stephen King adaptation. But does, Paramount again too, right? Yep. But fits in with the kind of underground, um, you know, underground monsters waiting to be dug up. Um, but what I like about Graveyard Shift, though, is it's again that it was that's all just waste runoff. Like that, those things were made by the runoff from the fa- from the factory. Like all, that, it, that was my understanding. Was almost that, yeah, yeah. It's almost like toxic sludge. Yes, like just running down, deforming into it. people and creating monsters, like Chud style. Yeah, exactly. There's another great, one of the great subterranean gross like monster movies. I think that one doesn't quite fit the bill that yeah. we're going here because like it's a bit bigger. Well, that and it's NYC grime uh, kind of feel that it has, but it also does very similar stuff there. But the thing that I couldn't help but, but think about too is that like, yeah, a lot of these are also like cautionary tales about like, don't do this or else you might raise up a monster, motherfucker. Like the Boogans does it because they're mining. The strangeness does it because they're mining yep. again. Um, the seller does it because they're drilling for oil. So what have we On learned? Sacred land. On yep. sacred land. Don't do that. Winter beast is the only one that doesn't really have it. And it has like the native American, like legend part of it, but that's all fucking horseshit. Like, it just seems like there's horrible beastoids like out in the wilderness that are just besieging this one Nowheresville like shop. That's a rough one, but uh, man, fucking entertaining. It really is. You want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right. Asking questions about 1981's The Boogans. Martin, this is your show. Take the honors. All right. First question. Remake, yay or nay, which one would you remake out of these four? And if so, how would you do it? Ooh, that's a really good one. Um, Out of the four? Oh, man. Not The Boogans, I don't think. Because I think one of the things that's so attractive or at least watchable about the Boogans now 40 plus years on is how it feels like that perfect amalgamation of ingenuity and like crass, like exploitative, like money grabbing hucksterism, you know? Uh, But, and also the handcrafted nature of it. Like you, you can tell they couldn't figure out the monster. Like all of its idiosyncrasies are actually what make it really fun to revisit. And you don't want to lose that through translation of a remake or dare try and replicate it. Cause then it just comes off phony, you know, um, the strangeness probably has the best premise out of the four for an actual remake Winter Beast, not at all, because again, that's like a, a VFX like highlight reel that you can tell is just again, it's all about ingenuity and and the fact that these guys are making these monsters like Astron Six style in their garage. The seller now because like that one could be interesting because you could take all of the problematic shit with the uh, Native Americans and stuff and like. Like, what would the seller look like from just a straight Native American perspective? That might be, like, one of the better, like, remake ideas for that one. 
So I'm leaning towards that. But ultimately, I would probably just go with the strangeness because I like how basic it is. I like that it's just a bunch of folks like going underground to try and strike it rich with gold and like an old, you know, uh, gold vein because that's, you know, that shit writes itself right there. And then encountering some kind of monster that was conjured up by the native people to keep them away from this land that is rich. I think you could take a lot of that and mine it for like a... No pun intended. Fascinating. Oh, shit. Yeah, fascinating uh, subtext and update it uh, using kind of modern values and terms and stuff and like, but still do it interesting uh, and 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 keep the exploitative and, and handcrafted side of it too. So I'd probably go with the strangeness. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, Boogans I'd probably leave B just because again, like you said, it's all there. It what makes it special is is the way it was made. Um I don't think there's enough interesting stuff about the monster to warrant a, a remake of that. And the reason I love it is not because I want to see more of that monster. I just like the characters, you know, in a joking way, I'd be like, I would do a legacy sequel and make fun of like Halloween and have like Rebecca Balding come back. Cause Fred McCarran sadly died, died a few years ago. Um, and I would have her like come back to like silver city and it's park city now. And it's like all overrun by like Sundance and the monsters are still there. Like I would have them basically running amok during Sundance. Oh man. <laughs> And what if she comes back? Oh, that could be an interesting like premise for the remake too, is that if you redid the Boogans, what if she's invited back to Sundance for like a repertory screening of the book or like an, an anniversary screening of the movie and the whole time she's like, why does anyone care about this film? Like it's fucking terrible. And then they're attacked by the real life Boogans. Like maybe she's in one of those crazy like ski you know ski resort style like lofts that cost like millions of dollars yep. just in there with a bunch of like modern hipster-esque pro- producers and then maybe like a couple of the cast members and then conway's there too and he's like i'm a successful tv director now i don't know what the fuck i'm doing here you know oh, that'd and, be like, awesome but then to have the actual like real life quote-unquote boogans attack like these people who made the film about them actually you know what we should just make this movie I love it because I'm actually going to Park City this summer to visit my buddy Mike. He lives there. And I'm looking for, I want to go look at the locations, like if there's anything left right. from like the Boogans. Like I'm sure it's all obviously gone. Um, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I think for me, strangeness and um, Winter Beast just like is so, I don't even know what you adapt. It's just, it's the own crazy little thing. Strangeness, I agree, has the most like clay to play with maybe. Um, but I would probably do the cellar as well. Um, I think like make it a little bit more Amblin, um, and make it more about the kid, um, going to, and there's a lot of like elements there that I think that get lost in the, at the cut I saw of like being a kid who lives with his mom, who sees his dad only in the summer and like their, it's their relationship starting to fray his relationship with the mom starting to fray. It's all kind of, again, with the edit that's out there of the theatrical cut, it's a little ham fisted and it doesn't really work. Well, you um, cast somebody who's not, Patrick Kilpatrick, who like, who his, I love, but not in this role, dude. His entire performance seems like hung around the idea of like I could strangle my wife and child at any moment. Like he seems on the edge in it. You're like, I think you're supposed to be the nice dad. You're playing this weird. Well, because he starts out like he starts out like that, that scene where he's boxing. Um, he's like pretending to box with a kid. And it made me think of the scene from body parts where Jeff Fahey's wrestling and the arm takes over. Oh yeah. Fucking punches his kid in the face. I was like thinking, Oh, that was going to happen. And out of nowhere, it kind of goes like the shining style where he starts to lose a little bit in the, in the cellar. Um, and I look my favorite Patrick Kilpatrick role. There's two. One is definitely a uh, death warrant uh, as the Sandman. I mean, fuck. Yeah great end fight. The other one is minority report. I think he's so fucking awesome in that. Oh movie. yeah. He's so, and it's like, he just so like, is like, you could tell he doesn't like Tom Cruise's character. He's excited to kind of kick his ass. Um, yeah, I fucking, I love him, but I would do like more Amblin and kind of amp up the kind of Goonies style stuff of the kid, like, you know, building, like building the stuff to fight the monster, make it a solid PG 13 and go and go like that. So you would stranger things, the shit 
out of if I had the to seller. Yeah, but I think actually if I, like, I had to if, <laughs> if the man said that they'd give me the money to do it, my hands are tied, Jacob. I'll tell my you hands what, are tied. I'm selling the fuck out, dude. <laughs> oh, dude, I'll sell out yesterday. I'm going to fuck. I'm 38, but um, <laughs> I live alone. But um, I next question would be double feature. Which which of these films would you double feature, and you can choose whatever you like. I mean, dude, we inadvertently because we slapped this episode together pretty quickly with the lineup and everything, but I think we inadvertently found the perfect double feature within the lineup, which is the boogans and the strangeness would play amazingly. Yeah. Especially with like the strangeness being the, the B film on the reel that all the weirdos stay for and are like, Oh, this is a real kind of hidden gem. Um, outside of that, I think I would do the boogans with my bloody Valentine. Oh fuck yeah, dude! Because it would just be that they they exist in the same exact world of that working class blue Late 20s. collar, yeah, and they're adults. Yep, that's the other thing about the boogans that I really really liked is and again like my bloody Valentine. It's like I think we discussed this either on the Friday the Thirteenth or Killer Party uh, episodes or maybe both, but how so many of those movies are populated by quote unquote teenagers these 20 somethings who are trying to play teenagers and like they're all pretty shrill you don't want to spend that much time and you end up ultimately like figuring out who you want to see die first as opposed to live through the whole movie where like with my bloody valentine you actually like all those dudes who like work in that mine in the same way with like this Ford, like this weird, almost like threes company style dynamic yes. that the foursome have the in TJ. the Boogans, yeah. to where like they're all kind of horny. You can't quite figure out their vague relationship to one another, and like they're all pretty charming and bumbling and goofy. And I don't know, they're, they're to bring it back to your original point is that there's a chasteness. And even like a purity to these characters that I think comes from the idea that that company dabbled in family friendly Hallmark style product and even Christian themed product is that you could feel the two uh, intentions coming together. And when it collides with that exploitative monster movie head on, it becomes something I don't know, like really special, but it's unique. That's for sure. Yeah. It's, 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 it's one of a kind. It's one of the reasons I like it. And a lot of the films that you and I both like are these just like, I don't know how this got made. It's this mixture of of chemicals that ended up being something great. I love My Bloody Valentine. That's one of my favorite slashers, period. Um, again, like you said, like, it's funny you said like the Three's Company stuff. There's also like just some great melodrama, like really deep melodrama in My Bloody Valentine. TJ like it's left. awesome. He like because they don't say it's Canada. It's supposed to I think be America. But, but he man, will, they're dropping O's like a motherfucker and chugging Molson. Sorry, I'm sorry, you know. And he him like going like he goes across to the west and like fall, really fell on my ass out there. And he comes back and you got, <laughs> you got Axel. Who in one year was the bad guy, my buddy Valentine, and played an extra in um, Scanners. Uh, so what a year for that actor. Um, both both trying to... Uh, he wasn't a hoser. He wasn't a hoser. He was a pretty, pretty busy guy. Um, but, you know, they're both in love with Lori. Um, and I just love, like... It's also a super well-directed movie, too. Like, it's a, like especially the directors, like, they finally released the, like, unrated cut. Like, the gore is, like, hard fucking yeah, gore. It's like, it's brutal. Um, but was the boogans? I did have a question because my bloody Valentine and obviously Friday the 13th are paramount and the boogans is paramount. Was that another independent production yeah. that paramount kind of back ended almost I'm 99% like, sure kind of like they did with Friday the 13th where it's like, we're not going to fund this movie, but if you deliver it and we think it's like a passable thing, like we'll actually put it out and make money off of it. Yes. I, okay. That's yeah, what I, I thought. Think Cause yeah. Cause I know that it, because my buddy Valentine was an independent production up in Canada. And they just like, I think Paramount was looking for anything. Paramount really made a killing with that business model in the early eighties. And the Boogans would have come at the exact time that they were doing that, which is what I wondered when their logo came up at first. And then you jump to this almost like snow browned, uh, Sean S Cunningham style aesthetic. Like it's just really meaty and like 
spliced together well, but there's there's also a, a sort of amateurish aesthetic to it at times. Well, it's funny. It's the same fucking year as Raiders of the Lost Ark, which oh, is yeah. also Paramount. That's a Paramount movie, <laughs> you know, with like, you know, obviously with, with Lucas and, and Spielberg, but just like two different worlds completely. Well, it's like Paramount was the studio of The Godfather. Yeah. You know, like... It was Robert Evans. It was like he was the the guy who was bringing stuff in and really making huge, like urban cowboy. Um, you know, he was making the Saturday Night Fever, like stuff that became iconic pieces of American movie making. And like Friday the 13th falls into that category, but it's so also outside of the realm of the movies that we just name dropped because it was like Paramount had their prestigious side, but they were also okay. Just selling you a little bit of weed out the back door. (laughs) So I have, uh, for double features, um, Obviously, I think this is a good group of films that all go well together. Um, I think, but again, Graveyard Shift, we realized as we're recording, goes well. Um, I had two. So one would be with the Boogans, and I would do a Rebecca Balding double feature with Silent Scream. Um, oh, I like that movie a I, lot. And I like that one a lot. Not the best horror, same kind of thing, but really fun characters. Um, and a really cool, fun conceit of like, they're all going to college. They show up late. They don't have dorm rooms, and they all are basically renting whatever they can. They find this great basically seaside Victorian mansion run by Yvonne DiCarlo and then her um, her crazy daughter who lives in the attic but played by the great Barbara Steele. Um, it's a really fun, like, it's 79, I think, so it's like, it's not telling a slasher, but it's in that kind of boom era. Right. Um, more of a weird kind of, like, murder thriller. Um, it reminds me of... A lot of the uh, Danny Steinman movie, The Unseen, where it's about all those, like Barbara Bach and those reporters who go to that remote, uh, almost like inn, and then are hunted down by a mongoloid played by Frounder from Animal House. So, what's more Agatha Christie then? I mean, like, this is more Agatha Christie than anything. Than The Unseen. Than The Unseen, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but then my other one was, while watching The Cellar today, I thought of one of my favorite movies I grew up with, which is um, The Quest with Henry um, Thomas, uh, which is also called Frog Dreaming. When it was Australia. Brian Trenchard Trenchard Smith. Smith, right? Yeah, so I actually rewatched it today because it got me in the mood. I hadn't seen it That's in years. That's a good one. It's a really fun one. So it was a, for those of you who haven't seen it, it was um, E.T. exploitation, where um, after Henry Thomas did E.T., Everyone wanted to work with him, and this production company in Australia said, "Let's just do a, a movie, a kid movie. This is pre Goonies, but I think it's pre Goonies um, with Henry Thomas as the lead, and it's not it's not Aliens at all, but it's that same kind of vibe of like it's a kids movie that um, Brian May did the score, but he basically did his version of John Williams. Right, scenes of kids riding together on be on bikes, like very similar to ET, but it's a really cool plot of a." Um, an American kid, they don't try to do an accent with him. His parents uh, died, I think, in a car accident. He goes to stay with his dad's best friend, who's Australian. Um, and he's like a, basically a child inventor. And he makes this like the first thing you meet him, he's um, trying to get um, down this hill on a uh, the train tracks with a, a train track bike in three minutes, basically from the station to school. Um, but then they throw a bunch of circumstances ends up in this awesome watering hole where he thinks it's a giant underwater monster. And I don't want to ruin it for what it really is, but it's a great kids kind of adventure movie, very similar to the kid, a more, a less annoying version of the kid, um, in the cellar who's like very handy, like can build tra- He knows how to like kind of wire things. Um, again, very kind of Goonies data esque kind of stuff going on there, but it kind of made me think of that movie and I was happy to rewatch it today. So I like that one a lot. Yeah, and, and it's great to have Trenchard Smith, who is like the king of exploitation, um, doing this kind of kids movie, which really wasn't his thing. Um, I think of like well, BMX Bandits. You're right; it has more of that feel. Um, but I think of like you know Dead and Drive In and like Night of the Demons Two um, and things like that. Um, so, final question: Face Melter, yay or nay? For or I'll say, are any of these a face melter? No. Like, no. Yeah, agreed. They're all, like, very much the textbook definition of, like, curios. Yeah. Like, you would only recommend the Boogans to somebody if you really knew them. You're like, hey, 
I really like this movie. I get it. It's going to take you a minute to get into it, but like just kind of find your groove with it and it'll be a lot of fun. The strangest and winter beast. I would only recommend to like the hardest core heads to where you're like, look, this is some weird fucking shit. And like, you might hate it, but you also might find something of value inside of it where the seller is probably the most accessible of all of them. Like in terms of just an A to B narrative, like it's, yeah. you know, the boogans just sort of hangs out and you have to be into that slasher movie vibe. Like the seller actually has like a, a golden era video store. Yes feel to where like you would take it home it gives you exactly the sort of narrative that's on the back of that that box's description and like it actually delivers a monster at the end that's well worth like waiting for i don't know like it just feels the most accessible that being said again kind of just a curio you look at a friend and you go you like witchboard you like night of the demons did you see this other movie this guy made not as good as those but pretty fun in its own right you know? Yep. No, I mean, I think three of these were a first time for me. I had never seen The Strangeness, I'd never seen The Cellar, and I had never seen Winter Beast. So, um, again, you recommend them to me for this podcast, and I am the person who can roll with this. And I have a, I have a few other friends, too, I think, that I could be like, hey, I think we're in this kind of mood. And again, Boogins is a one that I've shown to certain friends who they, same I've shown to Final Exam, you know, where it's like, hey, don't expect a lot of great gore, like a great monster, but like characters are super fun and it has a, a real like textured vibe to it. Um, you might almost call them secret handshake they movies. Are the, I mean, they're the ultimate. I mean, they, they're they specific secret handshake. Right. right. I mean, like that's a, <laughs> to bring it back to our podcast, you know, very, you're right. It's like, hey, I think you're not going to make a friend over it possibly, but you're going to like find someone to be like, I think I get you. Yeah, and I think this is the kind of thing you would like. And again, it's not going to give you 100% like, holy shit, this blew my mind. But I think you're going to find some stuff to like there um, and add it to your collection. Which might actually mark this as one of the purest episodes of the podcast since we first started it. Because these really are the like the, the movies that you only recommend after you know a person. You're like, we can get down on this. Like, yeah, we, and we, we did. Well I enjoyed enough. them all. Yeah, yeah, they're all pretty fun in their own right. But you know what? Coming up next, we have a celebration of one of our... I mean, he might be my favorite director of all time. I certainly know he ranks pretty high for you. He's top two. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for me, he's interchangeable with another one. But you know what? You're going to have to stay tuned until next week to find out who we're talking about. All right. See you then. See you then. See you then.